0: Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Lukas, for the introduction. Um, I think it's good indeed to compare the views. I mean, you've heard a number of issues already about, um, let's say, regulatory oversight and how it should be, how it works now and how it could be improved. Um, I was very curious to hear what Dietmar was going to say about the role of the NRA and the agency. Uh, I'm happy to say that for most things, actually, we we agree. Uh, For many things, in particular, of the analysis on where the issues are and what needs to be addressed, um, I think we're very close. There are some internal views on who should do what between, let's say, the agency and the NRAs, or well, we may have a bit of a different view, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll come to that a bit later. Given that we have quite um, a large audience here and a diverse audience as well, I think maybe it's good to say a few things about the current role of the agency before going into what the changes might be and why it might be necessary. So I'll very briefly take you through, let's say, the main legal uh, basis that we work on uh, and how we do it, give you a few examples to get a feeling of what we're doing. And then I'll speak about what we see uh, coming our way and where we think there may be, uh, let's say, room for improvement to strengthen the regulatory oversight. If you look at the history, the the short history of uh, the agency and what the legal basis is, there's basically three packages which we work on. The third energy package, the remit regulation on wholesale uh, market integrity, and the 10E uh, regulation for infrastructure. If you compare those three in terms of the role that is given to the agency, um, it's quite different. In the first one, in the third energy package, it's all, let's say, um, advisory, preparatory, reporting, um, and there's very little, probably no, let's say, power in there uh, included whatsoever. It's really based on the cooperation model. It's together with the NRAs, which is very good, and I support that, Uh, but it gives a very, let's say, uh, weak or soft role to the agency. Then comes Remit, and Remit says all data collection shall happen centrally through the agency. So we collect, we have now a huge database of all electricity and gas trading data as of October last year In, at the agency, which we then make available to the NRAs because they do the um, let's say the enforcement, they, they look if there's some breaches uh, of the remit regulation and they do the enforcement and we coordinate. So again, there's no hard power at the agency, but there is a lot of data coming our way and so a lot of information is available uh, to us. And then for the third one, the 10E regulation, um, again, based largely on the same model but with a few interesting changes. So a lot of it is indeed reporting, is monitoring, but in a few cases where NRAs cannot agree, and I'll give you an example later on, there is actually the hard power for the agency to intervene, to step in, and to say, well, in this case, we now take over, we have the power for this case, and we will take a binding decision. And that was not possible under the first or the second, let's say, legal package that gave us uh, some a role uh, to play. So if you look at this, apparently the legislator over time has come to the view that it is actually possible to give a bit more powers in certain cases to the agency, uh, and um, Well, we'll have to see how this trend uh, continues in the future. I'll give you examples from the three areas that we work on, the framework guidelines, network codes, the market monitoring, and the infrastructure, uh, as an example of how this is done at the moment, um, and then we can talk about, okay, what does it mean, how, let's say, what does it mean for the government? how hard or how soft are these powers, and what may need to be changed uh, in the future. So the first area, maybe the most well-known one, the development of the network codes, which in the end become binding rules for the EU uh, energy market, both for gas and electricity. Um, Basically, we have a preparatory role here, and the Commission holds all the lines. The Commission picks a topic from the list and says, well, now let's do a scoping exercise to see if something needs to be developed in terms of binding legislation, network code in the end, for this particular topic. We do the scoping. We check with all the stakeholders if there's a need for a rule on this one, yes or no. We report back to the Commission, the Commission says, okay, please start developing a framework guideline. We get um, half a year to do so, which should set out the main principles which should be covered by this framework guideline. Goes back to the Commission, Commission checks, if they're fine with it, goes to ENSO E, ENSO G, and they then have one year with, again, lots of stakeholder consultations to develop a more technical version of the framework guideline. So they should not change anything of substance, but they should detail it in such a way that it works for all the TSOs across the EU which is a lot of work, and it's very important that it's done properly. It comes back to us. We check with the framework guidelines, does it, um, does it comply, let's say, yes or no. We give an opinion. It's not binding. And in the end, we recommend to the commission, and we say, we recommend you to move forward with the network code, maybe with a few changes, if we th- are not convinced that the network code is fully in line with the framework guideline. Commission takes over, can change anything they want. If they're not satisfied, they can still do, uh, redraft the whole network code. Normally, they don't do it. Normally, they take at least the vast majority of what uh, the end source and we have delivered. Um, they put it forward to comtology it goes to the member states, and in the end, we will have a new network code in place, which will become legally binding uh, as the data application. So, the role that we have, it's an important technical role, uh, but it's a very preparatory role, and we don't have any, let's say, hard powers in this one. <laughs> it was mentioned already, where do we stand now with the network codes? I think in gas, we're Hope to be almost done. Uh, we have four uh, network codes in place, uh, commission guidelines, congestion management, capacity allocation, balancing, interoperability will enter. In, well, will be applicable as of this year. And then tariffs is in the final phase, we hope. Uh, it's going to the member state meetings, uh, comatology process, and we hope to have a vote somewhere later this year. And we don't see an immediate need for a new network code, at least on the gas side. So I think then we should have, let's say, the European rules um, pretty much ready for the time being. I'm sure there'll be rounds of amendments, um, but the overall framework should be pretty much uh, set. That's the first part. Third energy packets, (coughs) role of the agency, preparatory work, work which in the end become binding. Second aspect, um, market monitoring. Here we do things like looking at price levels and price convergence. Of course, we work towards these rules, should work towards um, integrating and harmonizing the European energy market. Um, As an example in gas, we look at the price differences between the different gas hubs. Um, And if you then look at the differences between what we see as the benchmark price, this is 2014 data in yellow TTF, and those hubs where the price is within one euro per megawatt hour from the benchmark. This is what you see. It's, let's say, the core part, which is really well integrated and where there's almost no price differences in 2014. There's a part surrounding that, which includes France, Italy, Spain, Poland, where the price difference is a bit bigger, 1 to 3 euro per megawatt hour, compared to the TTF average price in 2014. And there's a price which is a bit more peripheral and where people really pay a a much higher price for the same gas, basically. Lack of infrastructure, lack of competition, um, and that's why people, consumers in those markets pay much, much more for the same gas. And it shows that we're still not there when it comes to integrating uh, the market. We're now redoing the exercise based on 2015 data. This is 2014. You see the yellow area spreading. So you see that now also, and the first results that we have, Austria, uh, Slovakia are also yellow, France is yellow, um, Slovenia is light blue, Greece is light blue. So the colors are changing, and we can track in this way over time um, to what extent the market is being integrated and harmonized, and we see the prices coming down to what we think the competitive, what the market thinks the competitive level is. So our role here is just we monitor, we see to what extent we are overall making progress with the uh, internal energy market. We don't stop at the European borders because we also look at, for instance, Ukraine, um, to see what is happening there. And this chart shows you in a very interesting way um, the developments in 2014, 2015, when the Russian gas exports to ukraine were cut um, in the summer and it shows you two things one is the on the bars that you have here the blue and yellow ones they're the volumes they show you wh- how much was exported from the blue ones russia into ukraine or the yellow ones eu into ukraine on the top you see the price levels again blue is russian price russian gas priced into ukraine yellow one is gas coming from eu into ukraine this shows you what integration of the internal eu market in gas enabled not only inside the eu but also for a neighboring market as ukraine the fact that we had slovak interconnection point in reverse flow in the summer of 2014 that was really the key enabling factor to make sure that the gas could start flowing from in reverse from the west towards ukraine and you see that it doesn't fully compensate for the russian volumes but it covers quite a bit and much more than in the past and so there are now let's say, two main sources of gas from which Ukraine can source. One is, of course, the obvious one from Russia, but they also have quite some volumes they can cover from the West, from the EU hubs. And pricing was quite competitive. The pricing you see for the gas coming from the EU was for quite some time in 2014 until the beginning of 2015 cheaper than what they would have paid for Russian gas uh, at that time. Only when oil came down, Russian gas price followed, and then it became competitive again. What we do, we monitor. We look at the data, we analyze, we make it publicly available, and we see to what extent the integration of the internal, in this case, gas market, is advancing, yes or no. Third example, infrastructure. Um, This is the 10E package, the third one that I mentioned in the beginning. Um, Again, we do lots of monitoring on the PCI's, Projects of Common Interest. On the 10-way NDP, we give an opinion towards the ENSOs, uh, whether we think they've done their job properly for the 10-year network development plan. Um, We give a very interesting report on unit investment costs to let's say, give insight to investors and also to NRAs and TSOs what, let's say, average or ranges of cost would be for certain investments, electricity and gas, very first one, as far as I know, in, in Europe to do this work. And we have, as an exception, in some cases, the possibility to take binding decisions. This is for the cross-border cost allocation cases, um, where normally the NRAs who are concerned with such an investment request manage to agree amongst themselves how the costs should be split. Because in some cases, one country will face more costs than benefits, the neighboring countries will benefit and they have to agree on an allocation of the cost to make the whole thing work out. In some cases, it doesn't work. The NRAs have half a year to do it, to take a decision on a CBCA, an investment request. If they cannot manage after half a year the case automatically comes to acer and we will take over the case and we have three months to uh, take a binding decision that happened twice so far once in gas once in electricity and i'm showing you now the gas example which was the gas interconnector poland lithuania significant pipeline to make sure that the baltic states uh, gas market isolation would be ended uh, investments of about 550 uh, million euros and an unequal distribution of cost and benefits This was 2014, so we took over the case and we looked at um, what the case uh, looked like. And if you see then the cost and benefits, which is in the top right of this chart, um, benefits are in blue, um, costs are in red. Those are the four member states concerned, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. For Poland, it's quite clear. Overall, the project is beneficial for let's say the four countries combined. But why would a Polish TSO invest in something where the cost for them is higher than the benefits for their country? shouldn't do it. So they need a, 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 um, a proportion of the cost to be carried by their neighbors. That was the main question, and in the end we went through all the calculations, we s- checked what we thought, let's say, a reasonable allocation of the cost would be for the part that needs to be allocated cross-border, and we came up with a formula which basically said that uh, the Lithuanian TSO should carry two-thirds of the cost part that needs to be transferred, the Latvian one-third, and a very small part for the Estonian one. And that's a binding decision which can be appealed, wasn't appealed in this case, Um, And then, in the end, it leads to obligations for the NRAs to include those, let's say, um, these amounts which the TSOs have to pay into the national tariff systems, and then it should enable this investment to go through. So what you've seen so far, um, network codes, preparatory work for the agency, uh, market monitoring, reporting, infrastructure, mostly reporting and opinions, and in some very specific cases, taking decisions. That's what we have at the moment, that's our current package. For the future role, um, we're looking at what the Commission is saying, um, and Vice-President Shevchovich is a very outspoken person on the energy union, uh, of course, uh, and he speaks about this at the infrastructure forum in Copenhagen last year, a significant strengthening of the powers and independence of the agency, and we're always wondering what it would mean. Uh, so we're reading Commission documents to see what kind of thinking is emerging from their uh, publications. Um, First of all, in the energy union communication, they describe what the, what the problem is at the moment, as they see it. Um, and they say, Acer currently has very limited decision making rights, which is true. I think that's the current situation. Um, and then they say, we, the Commission, think that there should be um, a strengthening of the regulation of the single markets by giving significant reinforcement of the powers and in independence of Acer to carry out regulatory functions at EU level. At the moment, we don't really act as a regulator. We act together with all the regulators. Uh, We we don't regulate anybody. We don't regulate the ENSOs, we don't regulate any TSO. We have functions which are very close to regulatory work, but we don't act as a proper regulator. And the Commission may want to foresee in some cases that we get more of these powers. What could be done? Uh, Again, different Commission communication. Um, The powers independence may need to be reinforced to enable us to carry out regulatory functions at EU level where needed uh, and to arbitrate in regional and EU level disputes. Now, arbitration could be a very useful thing because we have no intention to take over all the things which are happening now at NRA level but in some cases we do see NRAs getting stuck at regional level they try to cooperate with two three four five NRAs and they disagree and now, what happens then they have a next meeting because they don't have a governance structure to allow them to take a binding decision and they kind of force any of the disagreeing let's say minority with however good or bad reasoning to say listen now we have to move ahead In such cases, it would actually be useful to ensure the process continues and comes to an end, to say, you have a certain amount of time. If you NRAs in the region cannot agree, then let's give the case to the agency. Like in CBCA, we will take over if needed, and we will take a binding decision, and then the whole process moves on. And it avoids that you end up in endless, let's say, discussions and new meetings without reaching the final conclusion. We did some thinking as well um, by, let's say, ourselves with the agency and and the NRAs in a paper called The Bridge to 2025 where we say we think that what we see coming our way, that the policy signals we get from the Commission, from Parliament, um, tend to say that we should have a bigger role and what should it look like? How, what kind of things could we foresee in a useful, in a meaningful way? And some things have been mentioned already, the oversight of the answers. I think we agree with what Christoph and what uh, Dietmar already said. Um, the answers are, uh, let's say, a strange combination of on the one hand being really representing their memberships, and the memberships can be private companies with private interests, and at the other hand having very clear European functions and those two do not always go very well together. We think the NSERs have very good and competent people in their offices, at the same time, in their internal governance, they are driven very strongly by their membership. And if one member disagrees, the whole thing may stop. So the governance of the NSERs, we cannot say, we can, of course, issue opinions about the NSERs and say, well, we think you should do this or that. But as Dietmar said, if they don't like it, they can just ignore it. They don't have to follow anything we say about their internal governance. If you want to change this, you need some regulatory oversight at EU level of the NSERs, both NSOE and NSOG and we think it may probably make sense to give such a role to the agency. For NRA uh, coordination, um, the peer review case was already mentioned. Uh, we have a mechanism whereby NRA can bring forward a case for the agency for a peer review. At the moment, we have to wait for cases to come our way. We think it might make sense to also allow us to initiate a case ourselves and say, well, actually, we think in this particular case, we would need to start a peer review process because we think we need a wider, let's say, agreement or view on a particular topic. And then for monitoring, um, we depend, I showed you the monitoring results, well, two examples out of many that we have uh, on how we view the market. We depend on publicly available data. We have no, and the NRAs who cooperate with us, but we have no powers by ourselves to request data that we think we need for market monitoring purposes. And we think it weakens our position if you really want to have proper market monitoring and make it available publicly uh, to all uh, market participants. We think we need the power to request the data that we need to do the market monitoring in a proper way. On the regulatory oversight of the answers um, we think for the answers themselves, um, it is relatively clear that it's, they are European bodies, they have a European function. Um, it's relatively obvious that the oversight should probably come to the agency in some way. Um, and it would be very helpful if we could indeed, in some way, uh, force them to do certain things. The enforcement, I think, is lacking at the moment. Um, if you have to go to the commission every time you think something needs to be done uh, it weakens your position and it would help be helpful to have more enforcement powers there for regional bodies however um, it is not so obvious because we have quite a number of regional institutions as well think about the booking platforms in gas um, they're not clearly european but they're clearly larger than national who should do the oversight there um, and there there's a bit more of a question who would take this role uh, on uh, himself or herself um, in electricity we have the nemos uh, who have to actually cooperate to, have the, uh, to run the single algorithm, um, so at, the, at least you have, let's say, a push from the CSM network code to say, this has to be done in a unified and harmonized way. In GAS, we have booking platforms who have to, let's say, per IP, you need a booking platform, but the booking platforms themselves don't have a mechanism in which they can cooperate. Now, here the question is, is the oversight by the NRAs at, let's say, regional level, is that sufficient? And does it work for two NRAs, three NRAs, what about five, what about 10 or 15? Or do you say now this becomes too complicated, there's no real mechanism, and we need to move this to the European level? I think that's for us one of the questions we are thinking about to see how we can provide input into the whole debate to ensure uh, a proper oversight. I think I'll leave it at this, and then I'll leave it for for the questions. Thank you very much.